0: All right. Thanks, worship team. That was that was good. That was good. That that song hits a little different when you're singing. I'm running to your arms when you're holding your son on Father's Day. So, okay. First uh, Timothy one twelve to seventeen. We're just gonna jump right in the scripture because we've got a feast of a scripture today. It's gonna be fantastic. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. Um, use the CSB. First Timothy one. Starting in verse 12, you have a Bible app or a Bible, if you turn there with me. and I also just want to say um, the reason uh, we don't put Bibles under your seats or anywhere in here is to encourage you to bring your own. Because I want you to see what God is saying right in front of you. And you to, ha- to bring that home with you and have his word echoing in your hearts and minds all week. So that's just kind of why we do that. All right, hopefully you're there now. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. And if you need a Bible, talk to me. I'll be happy to give you one. 1 Timothy 1, 12. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy. Because I acted out of ignorance, in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them. But. I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus, might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. So we're going to break this down in two different ways. We're going to look at who Paul was, and by extension, who we are in Christ, and then, or who we were, apart from Christ, and then we're going to talk about who Paul is, present tense, and who we are, present tense, in Christ. So, who was Paul? He, as you hear Paul describe himself, okay. As you, as you look at this, as I break this down for you, let it just kind of break down your walls. Perhaps you're here this morning, and my guess is there's, there's some people in here who, who don't know Christ. And I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you feel like you can't be forgiven. And I would just say, look at Paul. This guy was forgiven. This guy was a blasphemer. Verse 13, he calls himself that. This is who he was, someone, a blasphemer, someone who teaches false things about God. And according to Leviticus 24, the penalty for that is stoning to death. Acts 26, 11, you can just listen along. You don't need to turn there, maybe jot it down if you want. But here's, here's what we learn about Paul. He was telling about his former life. He says, in all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them and I pursued them, even to foreign cities. He's talking about how when he was persecuting Christians and he tried to make them blaspheme. So not only did Paul teach false things about God, he tried to make others teach false things about God. I mean, it's one thing to blaspheme, which equals Stoning to death, it's another thing to make other people blaspheme, which means you should be stoned to death for every person that you make blaspheme. That's Paul. You think you've got a rough past? You've got nothing on this guy. Nothing. He was a persecutor, verse 13, it says. So if we look back in Acts, Acts 8 1 to 3, listen to this. Saul that was his name pre Christ, Saul agreed with putting him to death. He's talking about Stephen. You can go back and read that in chapter 7 on your own time. Incredible story. But Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. And Saul, however, listen to this, he was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. This is Paul. Chapter 9, 1 and 2. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that he, if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he wasn't merely mocking followers of Jesus. That's, that's most of persecution that we experience. And if you ex- experience more, God bless you. But this is, this is probably the extent to which most of us have been persecuted, right? Where, where people mock us or say things behind our back or whatever. But this was not that. This is hardcore persecution. He was putting people to death. He was ravaging the church. He was dragging followers of Christ to prison so he was breathing threats and murder. So he wasn't just making threats. He was breathing them out. His whole mission and purpose in life at the time was to threaten and murder followers of Christ. He went house to house to try to find people who were following Jesus just so he could drag them off to prison, if not kill them. He ravaged the church. This is Paul, a persecutor. Verse 13, in 1 Timothy, we see he is also arrogant. Now, some translations say insolent, and the Greek word literally means violently arrogant. So, The idea here is is he's not just persecuting others like I just showed you. He did it just to elevate himself and make himself look better. He was gaining status through the harm of other people, which is completely self-centered no matter how you slice it. And he was doing it just to look good and gain status with these Jewish rulers. He was arrogant. We also learn in verse 13, he was in ignorant unbelief. So it isn't, it's not that Paul was innocently unaware of Jesus, ignorant. That would be understandable. You don't know what you don't know, right? See, he was aware of Jesus, though, and chose to reject him, as it says, in unbelief. This was on him. This was on Paul. He willingly and defiantly opposed Jesus and anyone who followed him. In Numbers 15, if you want to jot this down and look at it later, Numbers 15, 22 to 31, we see that the consequences for unintentional sins is that once a year they would take one bull and one, one goat and sacrifice it for the whole community, just in case you or you or you did something you didn't even realize was wrong, got it covered here, right? But for defiant, intentional sins, particularly for blasphemers like Paul, it says they will be cut off from God's people. So Paul deserved to be cut off from God and cut off from God's people. To add to this, verse 15, he calls himself the worst of sinners. Now I just showed you that he deserved to be stoned a thousand times over. And Paul was certainly messed up, right? He killed Christians simply because they were following Christ. No other reason. But was Paul actually the worst sinner? Like, is this an over-exaggeration? Is it just hyperbole? Is he just trying to get our attention? Well, comparatively to other people, you know, he probably wasn't the worst sinner. But he was the worst sinner. That he knew. In one of my favorite books called The Cross-Centered Life, and it's a real short read if you're not that into reading. um, But C.J. Mahaney, Cross-Centered Life, he says this about this passage. He says, every one of us can honestly claim that worst of sinners title. No, it isn't specially reserved for the Adolf Hitlers, Timothy McVeigh's, and Osama Bin Laden's of the world. William Law writes, we may justly condemn ourselves as the greatest sinners we know, get this, because we know more of the folly of our own hearts than we do of other people's. Like I, I don't see what y'all are thinking. I, don't, I never saw what Adolf Hitler was thinking, but I see my thoughts. And you see yours. And so we can rightly, with Paul, call ourselves as well the worst of sinners, or at least the worst sinner we know. Why would Paul call himself this? How is it even helpful? How is it helpful to us? He's saved now, right? If we're in Christ, we're saved now. Here's why it's important. Because it rightly humbles him and makes him appreciate the grace of Jesus even more. And that's true for us as well. Remembering the sin of our past actually produces profound gratitude. I think so, so many times we try to just avoid, I'm just not going to think about that, I'm not going to think about that, I'm not going to think about that. And for some of us in some situations that's really helpful. But I think more often than we feel comfortable with, we should actually reflect on the sins of our past. Because it helps us be more grateful for the grace of Jesus Christ. Puritan Pastor Thomas Goodwin said it like this. Remember, this is a pastor here. He's saying, When I was threatening to become cold in my ministry, and when I felt the Sabbath morning coming around and my heart was not filled with amazement at the grace of God, I used to take a turn up and down among the sins of my past. And I always came down again with a broken and contrite heart, ready to preach as it was preached as it was preached in the beginning the forgiveness of sins so we want to be like him if the message of the grace and mercy and love of God through Christ and through his death and resurrection is becoming stale or old or cold in our hearts and minds and we need to remember the sins of our past not to feel beat up not to feel ashamed but in order to appreciate Christ more So we saw who Paul was. Who were you? Well, just like Paul, you were a sinner. How were you a sinner? I want you to think about this. In your mind, in your heart, just what sin ruled and defined your life before you came to know Christ? Maybe it was addiction of some sort. Maybe it was laziness. Maybe it was selfishness. Maybe you were just a jerk to other people. For me, when I was a teenager, before I gave my life to Christ, I had an idol. Tennis was my God, and it was fun, but I could never get enough of it. It was dissatisfying in a way, and I was frustrated by it. And so I like to think back to that every time little things start to even show themselves as idols in my life and go, you know what, that's not what I think it is. That's not going to be what I want it to be. Christ is my Savior. Christ is my God. So it's good to think back to the sins of our past to even keep us from wanting to go there anymore. And and, and you might think to yourself, Matt, what if I came to know Christ at a really young age, like four years old? I can't even remember that phase of my life. Well, the reality is that while your core identity, once you come to know Christ, is not sin... Sin still takes the wheel in our lives from time to time. So when it did, so if that's your story, you came to know Christ really young, you don't remember pre-Christ, think back to a time in your life where sin started to take the wheel. We all have those moments in our lives, those seasons in our lives. You know, from time to time, just to kind of get your memory thinking from time to time, it becomes and has become people-pleasing to me where people become my God. If people are disappointed in me, I'm disappointed in me. If people are happy with me, then I'm happy with me. Or perfectionism loves to rear its ugly head in my life sometimes. Having to appear perfect on the outside and ignore and cover up any semblance of struggle. So what, what is it for you? What sin has taken the wheel in your past and just tends to come up again? It's good for us, even after Christ helps us put that sin to death. It's good for us to think back and remember who we were so that we can be grateful for who we are now in Christ and to keep us from running back to that sin. Now let's look at this passage from a different angle. Let's look at it from who Paul is presently. Who Paul is in spite of who he was. So who is he? Verse 12, it says, he was strengthened So this word is past tense. Paul was given strength initially by Jesus when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Scales fell from his eyes. A day later, he was given strength initially by Jesus to do ministry. Now remember who Paul was. God knows that Paul needed strength to do ministry. Think about it. His, in his own strength, Paul was literally doing the opposite of ministry. So here's just a layman's, in layman's terms, here's what ministry is. It's just serving other people on behalf of Jesus. That's what it means to do ministry. And as a follower of Christ, you do ministry. You serve other people on behalf of Jesus. But before Paul was doing ministry, he was literally doing the opposite. He was hindering other people from doing ministry. He was hindering people from serving others on Jesus' behalf. So he's going to need a new set of spiritual muscles, right? He's going to need the strength of Christ to do the opposite now. So Christ strengthened him. And verse 12, he didn't just strengthen him, he considered him faithful. You remember who Paul was? Blasphemer, persecutor, arrogant, unbelief. He was a sinner. This guy was considered faithful now by God. This guy? This word faithful literally means trustworthy. Why would you consider this guy trustworthy? I mean, literally, you have no rational reason except for the trustworthiness of Christ to trust Paul. But that's why Paul says in verse 12, I give thanks to who? Christ Jesus our Lord. Who has considered me faithful? And this is true of any one of us, too, and of anyone that God chooses to use for his purposes to do ministry. It's always a sinner considered trustworthy and faithful in spite of them. And it's all because of the trustworthiness of Christ in them, in you, in me. Quite honestly, it's how I feel anytime I stand up here and open up the word of God and teach it. I mean, who who am I to be considered faithful and trustworthy with God's very words? Did he forget who I was? Did he forget what I did? No. God didn't forget. He did one better. He forgave. He doesn't hold it against me. He doesn't even treat me like I ever did it. That's better than forgetting. And that's what he does with all of us. And so we can, we can hold our heads high and serve other people in Jesus' name with all humility because he considers us faithful, trustworthy, all because of him. Paul also now is appointed to do ministry. Verse 12, Paul, see, Paul didn't wake up one day and appoint himself to do ministry. Jesus appointed him. Jesus called him. In Acts 9, verse 15, God is telling Ananias to tell Paul, hey, this man, Paul, is my, listen to this, chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Chosen instrument. Paul's not just given this task to do things. He's God's instrument. Now, an instrument simply does what musicians tell it to do, right? So, I, we got this guitar. It's not wired, right, Maddie? We're going wireless today? Okay, good. Good. just don't want to screw things up for you. But you take this instrument, right? And if, I just, if I'm just like this, nothing happens. Okay? Paul, you and me, if we try to serve other people in Jesus' name, On our own strength, nothing. At best, we get that. It's junk unless you tune it right. But when God starts playing along, it starts to sound all right. But apart from that, it's nothing. So that's what it means. That's what it means that Paul is an instrument of Christ, and that's what it means for us as well. God calls us to do his work, and we need to answer that call, and when we do that, it's like a guitar, it's like God is just playing some some beautiful chords, better than I could ever play, or anyone could ever play, that just echo his message and his ministry to the world. Who else is Paul? Paul now has received mercy, verses 13 through 16. Sorry, verse 13 and 16. And it says in both of those verses, look at this. It says how terrible Paul was. And then it says, but I received mercy. Here's mercy. Mercy at its essence is not getting what you deserve. Paul is the recipient of inexplainable mercy. This is shocking. This is inexplicable. This, this would have actually been inexcusable mercy to anyone's standards. It wouldn't have been loving. It wouldn't have been just. It wouldn't have been right to just ignore the worst sinner, Paul, who's killing Christians. But the only reason this level of mercy is given is because of Christ's sacrifice. He took the punishment that should have been Paul's. And because Christ did that, he makes God's mercy. Justified, loving, and right, but still head scratchingly undeserved. This reminds me of a parable that I heard from a guy named Fred Barshaw called The Merciful King, and I wanted to read this to you briefly. Once upon a time, in a kingdom far, far away, there lived a great king. He was simultaneously the most powerful man in the kingdom as well as the kindest and gentlest man in all the realm. And the kingdom was known for its peace, harmony, and goodwill. Neighbors cherished one another, and years would pass without a single crime being committed. One day, however, the chief servant of the merciful king came into the throne room with ill tidings. There's a thief in the realm of your kingdom, sire, said the servant. The king was astonished. Find that thief, and when you do, bring him to me, and he will be punished with ten lashes. And those in the room were astonished. It had been so long since a crime had been committed, they could hardly imagine who would have done such a thing. A week went by, and the servant again made his way to the throne room. I have bad news for you, sire, he quietly reported. The thief has not been found, and he continues to rob from your people. And in anger, the king raised his voice and said, What? Find the thief, and when you do, he will receive 25 lashes. And the people began to murmur among themselves, Who could withstand such a punishment? Who could possibly be committing such a crime? But as time went on, the servant once again came back into the throne room, and yet another, with yet another bad report, Your Majesty, the thief has not been found when we have searched in vain for him. Your people are still being robbed. And the king was enraged, and he said, Find that wretched thief, and when you do, this punishment will be 50 lashes. Now the people were filled with dread. They were not even sure that the king himself could withstand such a punishment. And if he could not, then certainly no one could. Who could do such a thing? But soon afterward, the servant again approached the king, In his throne room. And his face was pale. And his voice timid and hollow. And he said your your highness. The thief has been found. Bring him to me this instant. Cried the king. The crowd that had poured into the throne room. Slowly parted revealing the thief. Who now stood trembling. In the middle of the room. And to the utter shock and dismay of all. It was the king's aged mother. There she stood. "'Trembling and crying, her small and frail body was shaking with fear and shame, "'and she was perhaps the very last soul that anyone would have suspected for such a crime. "'And there stood the king in shock and deeply wounded. "'And the crowd began to wonder and murmur among themselves, "'What will the merciful king do? "'Will he set aside the law and display his love and mercy "'by forgiving his mother for her crimes?' Or will he display his sovereignty and justice by giving her exactly what she deserved? Will he choose mercy or will he choose justice? The king raised his hand to quiet the crowd. Bring the whipping post, he said. The crowd was dumbfounded. Would the king truly have his mother receive such a punishment? Even the king could scarcely survive such a flogging This frail woman would not last even a few strokes. The old woman was tied to the post. Her garment was rent, exposing her back to the whipmaster, and her ribs could be counted for her frailty. Administer the lashes, said the king, and not a sound could be heard as the whip was raised. But just as the whipmaster was about to unleash his first stroke, the king cried, Halt! The crowd sighed in utter relief, but not for long. The king stood from his throne. He slowly removed the crown from his head, laying it upon the regal seat. And as he began to walk down the stairs toward his mother, he laid aside his royal robe and finely woven tunic. Coming to his mother, he wrapped his enormous body around her, completely enveloping her under his frame. Now administer the lashes, said the king. Thus, in one act did the king display pure mercy and perfect justice. And that is what Christ did for us. Received mercy. Didn't get what we deserved. Verse 14, we also see that Paul received grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. It says the grace of our Lord overflowed This is a gift of salvation, right? This is the gift of salvation from God himself in an overflow. This is an obnoxious amount. So think of it like this. It's summer. You go to DQ. You get a blizzard, and they bring it out. And your cup is up to here, and it's sticking out like that much. I mean, it's about to just start running down, and they put the spoon in. They flip it over. Somehow it all stays in there and they hand it to you, and it's the best day of your summer, because I got this overflowing blizzard. It's amazing, right? This is what it's like. That's what God's grace is like through Christ to us, except even better than that. Paul received grace through salvation that just overflowed to him, and he also received faith, verse 14. Note that both The faith and love that Paul mentions here is also overflowing from the Lord. Now, what a strange concept at first blush, right? Faith means trust. Isn't faith what we bring to the table? Well, the only way we can even have faith or trust is because God allows us to. God gives us the ability to even have that faith. So even our own faith is an undeserved gift from God. See, it's not on Paul. It's not on us. It's on God and how comforting. Let this this comfort you that you couldn't just conjure up faith and trust from God. He had to give that to you, especially on days when you, you feel like your faith is so tired and weak and frail. God's like, hey, I've got some overflowing faith for you today. Here you go. Paul received love, verse 14. If that wasn't all, right? Paul gets the love of Christ himself as well. But it's not just like a passing as you're going out the door to a loved one. I love you. You go off to work or you go to this place or that place. See, God's love, the word here, agape, means sacrificial, dependable, never running out, Sort of love, a love that that never says goodbye because it never goes away. see his love is so reliable because it comes with his presence. he loves us by giving us himself, the Holy Spirit indwelling us is with us and will never forsake us. so Paul received his love, we receive his love when we receive Christ, we receive. His extraordinary patience, verse 16. I mean, just, just feel this crescendo throughout this passage here. It just gets better and, and more extravagant and more unthinkable. Just when, just when I get done describing something rather incredible from God that Paul's receiving, and by extension we receive, it gets better. We receive extraordinary patience. Such extraordinary patience was needed... Because think of it, Paul was an extraordinary sinner, the worst of sinners, the ch- sinners, the chief of sinners. Patience literally means long suffering. And that word, long suffering, literally means to suffer for a long time alongside someone. It's putting up with someone's junk over and over for a really long time. That's what God had to do with Paul because of his sin. If you're ever tempted to believe that God is not patient with you, look at how patient he was with Christian killer Paul. He has extraordinary patience for us. And God did this with Paul so that Paul would be a great example, verse 16. Paul is now a shining example to anybody and everybody. So you think you've got a rough past? Look at Paul. No one. And I mean no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And you know what's interesting? As I typed that on my computer this week, I paused and thought to myself, really? Like no one is beyond the reach of God's grace? What if they just reject God and his grace? They're certainly beyond his reach, right? And then I was like, oh, wait, Saul was killing Christians. Talk about rejecting God's grace. Yet, Jesus has showed up in his life and said, Hey, quit persecuting me. I love you. Let's go. See, God's grace extends to anyone and everyone. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. If you feel like you can't be forgiven, Look at Paul. You might say, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. But you don't know what I've done. You don't understand what I've done, Matt. You don't understand what Paul did then, and you don't understand then what Jesus did. So who are we? Who are you? Look at Paul. You are all of those things Paul is If you are in Christ, you are strengthened. You're considered faithful. You're appointed to ministry. Certainly not the same ministry Paul had. But ministry nonetheless. You've received mercy and grace and faith and love and extraordinary patience. And God wants to use your life as an example. Boil all of this down from this whole passage. Who are we? I'd just put it like this. We're saved. I think saved is a great word. Verse 15, he said that Christ came into the world to do what? To save sinners. So yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're saints. But I think it's most helpful to just call ourselves saved. It keeps both in mind. See, I've heard strong arguments for thinking of ourselves, oh, you just need to think of yourself as a sinner. So you bring yourself down to size. Oh, you need to just think of yourself as a saint because Jesus took care of your sin and that's who you are now. And I'm like, it's both. I mean, once, We were completely defined by sin, but that's not who we are anymore. And one day we will be completely free of sin's presence, but we're certainly not there yet. So you're saved. So remember who you were, sinner. Emphasize what Jesus did. You're saved. And embrace whose you are, your Christ. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And this is a trustworthy and deserving phrase that's, full, that's worthy of all our acceptance. So who am I? Who are you? Saved. Now, this passage is bookended with the only sane, rational responses that I could think of to a message like this. The first one is Thanksgiving. Verse 12. I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord. So, I invite you to pick up the communion cup below your seat. And you can start taking out the bread. But before we take this, I want us to just think for a second about sins that have taken the wheel in our life recently. What sin in your life? And I don't, I don't mean like a year ago. I mean like this week. have started to take the wheel this week. And I want you to just take some time. Just take a second. Let's bow our head. Let's close our eyes. Let's just take some time. Just you and the Lord. And just confess those things to God. God, I'm sorry. I let this and that. Take your place this week and take the wheel. Confess that to him. So, as we take the bread together, thank God for having his body broken for that very sin that you just confessed. And listen to this. Before we take this, just as your teeth will, will break this bread, envision Jesus breaking the power of that sin in your life. Let's take it together. But our identity is that we're saved. So I want you to think of a sin or two from your past. And I want you to thank Jesus for forgiving you and freeing you from that. Think of things that just held you down, that you were just captive to in your past, that you can, by and large, say, I'm free from that. Just take some time and thank God. Bow your head, close your eyes, just take a minute, take a second. Thank Jesus for freeing you from this sin and that sin in your past. As we take this juice together again. Thank Jesus for his overflowing grace through his spilled blood on the cross. Let's take this. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. All right, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on up. And as they're coming up, I just want to point out to you in this passage, we're almost done, but verse 17 has the, the other only sane response. Yes, we should be grateful, but then we should praise. Look at Paul. He can't help but just stop in the middle of his letter. I don't know about you, I've never received a letter where this happens. It looks rather strange when you think of it as just like receiving a letter, but he just stops. He's overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And verse 17, he goes, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I thought, you know what? Instead of me blabbing about that verse this morning, let's live it out. Let's live it out. So I invite you to stand up. And we're going to have an extended time of worship here at the end to just praise the Lord.